Here come the horses for today's race. Welcome to Between the Stacks, a podcast presented by the Athens-Limestone County Public Library. Each episode brings you into the library to meet our collection of people making an impact on the community of Athens and Limestone County, Alabama. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us this afternoon for Between the Stacks at the Athens Limestone County Public Library. My name is Melinda Jones and I'm the Adult Outreach Program Coordinator here at the library. And this afternoon with me I have Jennifer Kelly, the author of The Foxes of Belair. And I've got a few questions for her and she's also just going to talk to us. So I'm going to turn it over to Jennifer. Hi, Melinda. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. We're so excited about you being here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, well, I'm actually a Birmingham native, but I've lived here in Madison County area since December of 1999. And I got my master's here at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. And then I transitioned to teaching at UAH until about 2014 when I decided that rather than teaching other people how to write, I would prefer to write myself. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us a little bit about your newest book. All right. Well, this is my second book. It's called The Foxes of Bel-Air, Gallant Fox, Omaha, and the Quest for the Triple Crown. And it follows up on my first book, which was about Sir Barton, who won the first Triple Crown. And the idea behind the second book is to pick up where that left off and to talk about the next two horses to win the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont Stakes, and the two horses and the gentleman behind them that really made the Triple Crown what it is, or started at least on a journey to what it is now. So can you give us a little bit of the background on the trainer and the owner in this book? All right. The owner is uh, a gentleman named William Woodward, who was a banker that was born in New York, but inherited a estate in Maryland called Bel Air from his uncle. And at Bel Air, he set up a breeding operation uh, for thoroughbreds. And then as he got closer to actually wanting to race them himself, he made some changes. He would breed the horses in Kentucky and then bring them back to Maryland to prepare them to race and then would send them to New York to his trainer, who was a gentleman named Jim Fitzsimmons. And then Sonny Jim would have them until they were retired, and then they would go stand stud in Kentucky. And Woodward was just a long time. He's a banker and a lawyer, but his biggest passion was horse racing, and so that's what he invested his time in. In about 1923, when he decided to start racing, he hired Sonny Jim Fitzsimmons to train his horses. And Sonny Jim had grown up you know, as a one of many children in his Irish Catholic family and had not really had a ton of formal education, but had fallen in love with racing when he was a young man also and started out as a jockey. And then when he grew too big to be a jockey, he became a trainer. <laughs> he owned horses every now and again, but mostly he trained for William Woodward and for another stable until he was in his 80s. And then retired and uh, passed away, I think, a few years later in his 90s. So he was a, he had a 70-year career as a trainer. That's amazing. <laughs> right. Wow, that's really amazing. So racing is mostly an aristocratic sport. Do you address your thoughts on that? Is that true? I mean, what do you think? Kind of tell us about it. Well, racing started out as an aristocratic sport because generally the only people that had the means to actually have horses that you could use for something other than work were aristocrats. So it is called the sport of kings for a reason because it started with kings in England and the aristocratic section over there. And then when it came to the United States, 
honestly, there's a range of people who do horse racing. The primary ones that you're going to see with the most means and the most opportunity are the ones who do have quite a bit of, you know, wealth or other opportunities behind them. But I will say, and now I'm probably going to date this broadcast by saying this, but this past weekend, a woman named Jenna Antonucci won the Belmont Stakes and became the first woman trainer to win a Triple Crown race in the entire 150 plus years of that race and did it with a $35,000 horse. And she is only, she has a handful of horses, maybe a few more in her stable, had only won a couple of graded stakes prior to that. But thanks to Archangelo, now Jenna goes down in history as the first woman to train horses, despite the fact that she's not one of the ones with the the big stables with a lot of, you know, wealthy owners behind her. Mm -hmm. So is it about breeding or training or heart? What do you think on that situation? I think it's like people. Uh Uh-huh. So people are born with a certain amount of, you know, I I need to find the right word with this, the certain amount of talent and will. And then you have to have the opportunity to cultivate that talent and will to bend it in a particular direction. So if you're able to, as a horse or as a person, which, you know, is probably not the best equivocation, but bear with me here. Um, (laughs) If you're a horse with the right opportunity and the right people around you, you can capitalize on the talents that are given to you and take it another step further. So there's always going to be humans who are going to get the best out of other humans and humans can get the best out of horses and really push, you know, horses to find their depth and their talent. So it's just all like this happy, you know, mixture of opportunity and talent. And then just that extra something that rises to the occasion whenever asked. What about all the horses this year that were euthanized at Churchill Downs and why? Racing is an athletic pursuit. And horses are asked to do a lot of things that require a lot of physical energy and, you know, ask them to do things in sharp turns or change leads or just operate, you know, on a split second decision. The problem with a horse is that they, you know, their bones, especially in their lower legs, are about the same as our human ankle. So if you can imagine a thousand pound animal running on a leg that's around the same size as your ankle, it takes a toll on a horse. The horses that have died is mostly because they had injuries in areas where they could not, unfortunately, be, you know, worked on medically and then save their lives. No one goes into a race thinking that they're going to lose their horse. They they would never put them in that position. They always do it with the best of intent and do the best they can to avoid risk that's going to be that level of just detrimental. So when these horses are euthanized, it is not because these people don't care about them or because they don't want to invest in their care. It's because they literally have no other option. They know that if they put the horse through surgery, if they put the horse through all the rehab, there's still a really good chance that they're just not going to make it either way. And they really would prefer to avoid that level of pain and disappointment. So it's it's not a, a comfortable topic for people, but it's one of those where you have to understand these are animals and everyone who's caring for them is doing the very best they can to make sure that they're well cared for. Is this sport too dangerous? Like any sport where you have contact or where you have a lot of speed, there's always risk. And I think people who undertake the sport understand the risk. And they would not put themselves or the animals in that spot if they did not feel like 
they had done everything they could to mitigate the risk and to keep everybody, not just their horse, but all the horses around them and all the people around them safe. So, yes, there is always risk. And yes, the people who are participating are aware of that risk, but they do everything they can to mitigate that for everyone around. Some are calling for the sport to be discontinued. I understand the impulse. And I mean, it's the same as like, I would hate that, you know, people have pets and you would hate to see someone in a pet hoarding situation where they've got too many pets and it puts a lot of animals at risk. I understand that people want to do away with it, but it's also probably the world's oldest sport. So the thing about it is that even if it were to go away here, they're still racing in other places. And so there's so many jobs and so many opportunities that go away if we eliminate the sport. And I really wish we had a way to show everyone that horses in a field just run. That's just one of the things they do. They race each other. They, you know, race up and down the fence. They do all sorts of things. So these horses are working when they're racing, you know. And I've had people say, why well, you make horses do this. Like, I have been on a horse, and let me tell you, you cannot make a thousand-pound animal do something it does not want to do. <laughs> okay. Shady or fraudulent aspect to racing? How do you feel about that? Okay, so if you think back to, you know, something like the steroid scandals of the 90s in baseball and then to something like deflate gate in football and, you know, Lance Armstrong and his blood doping, there are always people who are seeking an advantage. The good thing is that there are people who do not want to let them succeed and are doing what they can to find the people who are willing to push the envelope and willing to do things that are untoward and try to find the best way to keep them from doing that. But I think it's it's just like any sport. There's always going to be someone somewhere that's doing something that one might consider shady or fraudulent to gain an advantage. And it's up to the sport as a whole to take steps to find a way to keep them from doing that. Do you have a personal connection to horse racing? Personal? No, other than being a fan. My background is I grew up uh, the oldest of three, and my dad was a very sports-centered person, and so we were always watching sports or participating in sports. And so when I was about 10, I was introduced to horse racing via the Black Stallion by Walter Farley, Uh, my fifth grade teacher read to us. And then this was about the time that video stores became a thing. So you could drive down the road and rent a movie for a dollar or something like that. So I watched the movie version of the book. And then I caught the sport on television one day and was just completely enamored of it to the point that a couple of years later, my aunt actually took me to the Birmingham race course for the day. And mind you, I was 12. So my mom's not terribly thrilled about this experience, but it was a fun one. And just ever since then, I've been a huge fan of the sport and I own shares in a couple of racehorses recently, which is something that my husband and I did. We, we spent a couple hundred dollars and bought shares and horses that are now retired. But for the most part, my connection to the sport is first as a fan and second as a professional, both as an author and a writer. So can you give us a slice of racing life from everyday training to race day? Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, I have done my best to be 
on the backside to watch this. And, you know, you can watch plenty of YouTube videos and whatnot. I'll give you a glimpse of it. But um, people who work in horse racing get up really early in the morning, which is not my jam. So it's one of the reasons why I do not work on the backside, but I will if I need to. Uh, they get very early. Horses will go out and work out in the early mornings, sometimes as early as five or six in the morning. They will jog or breeze or whatever they need to do to prepare for the race, just like any of us if we were preparing for a 5K would do some practice runs. This is the same thought process. They'll Well, first they'll cool out after they work out, and then they'll be fed. They'll rest for a while, and then if it's race day, they'll go through a particular routine where they'll change up what they're feeding them or when they give them water, and then they will groom them and prepare them for the race bring them to the paddock. The paddock is usually a circular area where they have little stalls. The trainer will put the saddle on them, and then they'll wait for the jockey to come out. Uh, the trainer will speak to the jockey and give him instructions, give her instructions on you know what to do during the race based on who they're racing against and the particular uh, track and whatnot. And then the jockey will mount. They will walk out to the racetrack in what's called a post parade, where they will walk around in a little circle near the starting gate. <laughs> and everybody in the crowd gets a chance to see them for the last time before they walk into the gate. They'll line up behind the starting gate, and some um, employees called assistant starters will bring the horses in, and then they will close the doors in front and behind them, and they will hold the bridle while they're waiting for the starter to push the button. And then as soon as the starter hits the button, as soon as everybody's set, he will hit the button, and then they will go. (laughs) So you've seen this happen lots of times. I have. I was at the Kentucky Derby this year, so I saw my share of it, and, and then I was in Maryland this past weekend, and... I watched mostly racing on TV, but I did watch a couple of races at Delaware Park while I was there. So what is it about horse racing that is so captivating? I think it's any sort of connection to achievement, to the thrill of achievement. And I'm going to go back to Arcangelo and the Belmont this weekend. It is innately human to seek out moments where people rise to the occasion or where animals rise to the occasion. So you can follow a story, you know, this is a horse that was not very, you know, expensive. He needed extra time to kind of grow up and to find out what kind of a horse he was going to be. He started later than most three-year-olds do. He only ran once at two and his trainer was very patient with him, let him grow up and kind of get a feel for what his job is. And then it comes to the Belmont. He's not very He's not a favorite. He was definitely on people's radar. He was not a favorite. But, you know, the fact that it was a woman trainer, the fact that it was a small stable, and the fact that this was a horse whose father, whose sire, was deceased in 2020, you know, it made everyone get really, like, excited about that story. So watching him progress around the racetrack, uh, you know, under his jockey, who had never won the Belmont either, you know, very patiently sit there and wait for the moment and just find his spot and just boom and run away. It's thrilling. And it's like any other championship moment, whether you're watching the World Series and you see the last pitch and, you know, everyone on the team just throws their gloves up in the air, runs toward the mound or basketball when, you know, the last shot goes in and the clock expires. You're just like, yeah, all right, Super Bowl, whatever is your sport where you get that rise. It is seeking that moment of just something that connects you to the larger experience of being human and, and engaging in something that asks you to do more than you've ever been asked before. 
Very interesting again. Well, thanks so much for sharing all this with us. We appreciate it. But before we close out, I just have a couple of questions for you. So tell me what you're reading right now. What's your favorite topic? What genre? What do you enjoy? Tell me what you're reading. The problem with being a working writer is that reading is kind of tough because I spend so much of my time reading to do my job. So by the time I get to the free time to actually have for myself, I don't always have the need to just jump right into reading a book. So at present, I am still reading the latest Outlander book because I have not been able to put enough brain space together to you know finish it. But that's what I'm working on. And when I'm not reading about you know the stuff that I... I will read about horse racing for fun because that's how much I love it. When I'm not doing that, I, you know, I'm reading an Outlander book or I, I really like nonfiction because I like learning. It's been so long since I've been able to read for fun that when I knew you were going to ask me that question and I was sitting there going, I honestly can't remember. <laughs> I know. That's that's the problem. Sometimes we're all just so busy that we don't have time to do what we enjoy. So, well, we appreciate you coming today and talking to us, and we can't wait to share this with all our audience. So, thanks so much. Have a good afternoon. Thank you, Melinda. You've been listening to Between the Stacks, a podcast from the Athens-Limestone County Public Library. To hear other recordings from our Library Voices podcast series, check out our website at alcpl.org.